welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I'm your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Thank you for joining us again today for another conversation about some of our favourite films. Give us a follow on Twitter, at Kinotomic, send us an email at kinotomic at gmail.com and tell us what your favourite Christmas movie is. So yes, we finally got slightly festive with two somewhat festive films. I think they're more holiday films than Christmas films. You know? Yeah. Well, one of them is not really festive, but more on that a bit later. Yeah. Huh. So shall we begin with the more festive one, which is, of course my pick because I like Christmas and I like Christmas movies um, after which I shall proceed to blame Nick for not picking a more festive film and don't say Gremlins <sighs> we, we, will, we will be talking about Gremlins one day it will happen um, okay. it will happen not this year, not next year <laughs> um, right so, um, let's start with the 1940, The Shop Around the Corner, directed by the great Ernst Lubitsch, one of the best directors of all time. So, here's a quick synopsis. Two employees at a leather, leather goods shop can barely stand each other without realising that they are falling in love through the post as each other's anonymous pen pal. Nick. What did you think of the shop around the corner? So when you when you first proposed this film, um, you asked me if I'd seen the film You Got Mail by uh, starring Tom Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Um, I think it's like because there are so many Tom Hanks Meg Ryan rom coms out there. I, There's I, only three. I, yeah, that's 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 like one too many. Um, like, <laughs> like oh, ouch. <laughs> like you know, there's 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 a there's quite a few of them, and, and it's just like I kind of thought I oh, I don't really know which one that is, so I, I said no, um because you were like oh it shares the premise with this and it's good that if you don't know the story that kind of thing, and about twenty minutes into this the the shop around the corner it it's it to that I had seen you got mail, <laughs> um I had seen it um because I recognised the premise of the two letter of the of the writing of the of the anonymous letters I won't say anonymous but you know letters to 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 there like, are anonymous kind of so yeah anonymous yeah sorry um and I recognised that and and I thought okay I I I know. <sighs> I, I kind of knew what was going to happen, but what I wasn't expecting was the fact that I really, really enjoyed the film in that I'm not a massive fan of rom-coms. Like, it's out of the genre. It's my least favourite um, of all the genres out there. Um, but it's... maybe I think it's maybe because I'm not... I've always I've always been I've been forced to kind of sit down and watch rom coms by my mum or something, you know, like it'd be like, you know, we're gonna get a McDonald's or you know, we'll rent a film for Blockbuster and then we'll sit down and it will turn out to be I don't know Notting Hill Joe, or... Joe versus the volcano. I've not seen that. I've not seen that. Um <laughs> Yeah. Like so like the, the, the you know like the holiday for example if we're going with with rom-coms christmas themed films like you know it it the film just it, it's it's just not it's not very very good it, and it just seems like a waste of talent involved whereas this i've i've never seen an Ernst Lubitsch film before this is my first one um um but i am very very familiar with Jimmy Stewart um, Rear Window being my favorite Hitchcock film, very followed very very closely behind by by Vertigo, um, and obviously I, I you know he's great in in It's a Wonderful Life, um, and um, Rope, which I've seen I've seen Rope as well, the other Hitchcock film. So I'm you know I'm very very familiar with his his work, you know with Hitchcock, um, and I'm I'm a big fan of his. So it's like. 
okay, you know, the talent's really, really good. Um, but I wasn't expecting to really, really enjoy this so much. Um, I I thought that the interplay between all, all of the characters in the film, not just from the main two, was, was impeccably written. I thought the direction was, was utterly excellent. There's an, an amazing shot at the end with the snow falling outside the shop with all the masses of people outside in the street. And it's held for quite a long, uh, quite a while, and, and it was a really, really beautiful shot. Um, you know, the, and then the film also kind of has undercurrents of darkness in its subplots. You know, you know, there's there's depression, there's adultery, suicide. You know, pretty much everything you want in a in a Christmas film. Um, you know, <laughs> in the best in the best kind of Christmas films. You know, think about it's a Wonderful Life. You know, he he wants to jump, he wants to kill himself. You know, yes. and and you think about, I mean, uh, uh, Gremlins, for example. You know that that film is a is an amazing Christmas film in that it's got some really really dark stuff in there, but it's all built around this whole idea of of community and and family and and coming together, which is exactly what Shop Around the Corner does. Um, yes. and it's kind of it's what the best Christmas films do. It just brings it all together. That's why, um. Uh, Bad Santa works, Billy Bob Thornton. Despite that being a really, really dark film, blackly comic film, that film is about a man who's coming together with and forming a makeshift family and finding meaning in his utterly meaningless world. Um, so I think that's what what makes a really, really good Christmas film. And this this film does it as in as as good as any as I've seen. Um, as a romantic comedy, you know it's it's got the kind of it's got the tropes in there, but because this is nineteen forty version of a romantic comedy and not you know the the oversaturated nineties two thousand stuff that I'm more familiar with, it seems much more kind of fresh and less gimmicky and less what's the word saccharine than than some of the other stuff. Um, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed seeing the development of the, of the relationship between Clara and Alfred. Um, obviously, the the classic, they hate each other, but then they love each other, you know. But it's done in such a way where I actually didn't... Th- there was genuine kind of almost tension there, even though that I knew that, you know, the, 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 they were talking to each other through these letters. Um, and then you get that scene in the cafe where he figures out before you know he figures out you know who who he's been writing to um and you get that amazing scene in the cafe and it all, it's a really really interesting scene um and it's one night i you know i actually rewatched just that scene after after watching the film and kind of really really enjoyed seeing that kind of interaction play out um it's it's really it's really really hard to kind of say it's like the writing is really really well done the the blocking in the scene is very very well done and so yeah and i think that i think that the performances um uh, from margaret sullivan and jimmy stewart are, are, are utterly utterly amazing i I, it's, I i literally have a a no notes moment where i throw up my notes and i just go no i got nothing um <laughs> i think the moment where there's kind of like two two moments, one from each one from each character. that really kind of um really show how really fucking good these act actors their actors are. So the one the one is where uh, Clara's gloved hand goes into the empty post box, and the camera kind of pans down as she looks in, and you see a heart breaking, and like she almost like her whole facial expression just totally changes and totally shifts. Um, and then the other moment um, from Jimmy Stewart is kind of it's it's that moment where he um, he's been fired. Um, you know, he's, he goes in with this kind of hot, hopeful optimism because you know he's finally going to get you know the the thing that he's wanting to get, and he comes up with this sucker punch, and it's so it's really really understated. It's not overly dramatic. It's not overly emotional, but you see it in his face how it's kind of hitting him so hard. Um, if I were to have any issues with the film, it would be at the end. So we've established that the, the Frank fi- Alfred, sorry, finds out about Clara 
rather than vice versa. And he kind of ends up almost emotionally and psychologically torturing her or like teasing her at the end of the film um, with a fake, you know, person that she's meeting. And initially when he started doing it, he was saying these things and it was derogatory upon himself. But when he started saying these things and it was starting to affect her, it really started to rub me the wrong way. I was kind of just sat there screaming for him just, just to get it out, just to say it, you know, just to say who he is. Um, and then, you know, it kind of, then it happens, the reveal happens and the look between the two happens and then the kiss and then the credits. And I wasn't frustrated by it. I was quite, I was really quite happy with this nice warm feeling inside. Um, I really, really do like the fact that everybody kind of got these deserved, everybody who deserved it all got happy endings at the film. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as a rom-com, you know, th this, it did work like, it did really, really work really, really well. Um, and as a Christmas film, it will be one that I will probably recommend in the future to a lot of other people. Um, I think my sister would love this film and, um, yeah, I can, I can kind of see it sneaking into my, my yearly rotation, um, <laughs> of Christmas films, um, joining the likes of. Batman Returns, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Gremlins, and uh, Elf. So um, yeah, thank you for this. Thank you. so. I think it's a very very nice film to have. Honestly, really 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 great. Okay, so um, right. How should I start? I can't. Sorry, really I, I, I ended up rambling a bit. I was like, you know. no, that's right. Um, I just can't imagine i don't know i've not have you never you've never been shown in in film school any lubitsch films at all no. it's a name I, it's a name i have been familiar with through film history but it's just it's just kind of just one of those names that's you know the film never kind of came up um okay like i said it is we a name were, i'm familiar with but yeah we were shown the the oyster princess at um, in in our like history of film, like film introduction of film studies at school, and it was I think one of the first silent films that we were shown. Um, right after Ed Edwin S. Porter, and it was just one of those things that it just blew my mind. And I definitely recommend watching The Oyster Princess if you've not seen it. I think it's only about an hour long, and it's just it it's nineteen nineteen, so it's a silent film from Germany because Lubitsch was born in Germany um so this was before he went to Hollywood but it's such it's filled with with the mannerism and and the directorial sort of trademarks that you will later discover in in later Hitchcock um, films it's just so brilliant and it it's kind of shows what's about to sort of unravel so um yeah, I'm, I'm really glad they enjoyed it. Uh, I think I texted you um, yesterday saying that if you didn't like this film, don't even bother to show up for the recording because um, I, I thought it would be impossible for someone to dislike this film. Can you imagine and that I... if we actually did the whole podcast where you did the introduction and you say my name and there's just crickets? And just, and I will have to explain happens. that um I will have to explain that I sent a hitman up to Edinburgh <laughs> to kill you because you didn't like Ernst Lubitsch. So and everyone would would be like yeah fair enough yeah yep, fair enough that sounds yeah, about right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no jury would condemn me. <laughs> yeah, you could get off scot free for that one. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm really happy that you enjoyed it, and I think. I think the reason that, that I mean I kind of agree with you like he kind of tortures her at the end slightly but you felt you have to imagine that he was quite nervous about revealing himself to her so he kind of had to make himself look look good by comparison with this imaginary individual Mr. Popkin um so that's why he kind of by comparison he would he would look like a catch even though he didn't feel like he was he was a catch you know, so he would invent this horrible person who was just after her money, even though she hasn't, she has none. Um, 
and also it's just to maybe prolong the tension of the audience because Lubitsch always writes a film, makes a film with the audience in mind to make sure that the audience is right there captivated up until the very end. So to have us, that's why you, you were you were feeling frustrated because she was feeling frustrated because all, you know, so it's, it's it, I think it's quite ingenious how he, how he works that into the films. And yeah, um, I found a few interesting things about the making of the film and I can talk about Lubitsch forever because he was like a master's director. Most of the directors that we know and love were sort of, in love with him. Billy Wilder famously had um, a sign on in his office saying, what would Lubitsch do? And, uh, you know, Orson Welles, um, Peter Bogdanovich, everyone loved him very, very much and everyone admired his work. And in the book Ernst Lubitsch, Laughter in Paradise, he called this film the best picture I ever made in my life. And it's, I think it, it, it owes a great debt to the environment he grew up in because he grew up, his family, I think, were, were uh, shopkeepers. So he kind of dedicated this film to, to his upbringing in Berlin. I mean, it is set in Budapest, but it, it feels quite European, pan-European. Um, a funny anecdote about the film, once he was, he was, talk, he was talking about um, the film once he wrapped it and he talked to the New York Sun saying and I quote it's not a big picture just a quiet little story that seemed to have some charm it didn't cost very much for such a cost under five hundred thousand dollars it was made in 28 days 28 days I hope it has some charm um so yeah I do think that it has some charm <laughs> And it's one of those classic Christmas films that are kind of on the same sort of um, level with uh, It's a Wonderful Life, um, you know, um, what, the other uh, Miracle on, on 34th Street or something like that. Um, and yeah, I'm glad that you enjoyed Margaret Sullivan and especially that scene where she puts her hand in, in the post box 237. It just felt very, very emotional. To see that again with you know you see the gloved hand and then you see her extremely heartbroken disappointed face it's it's quite unique and um margaret sullivan she was kind of a theater actress like east coast and she didn't like being part of the studio system in hollywood so she was never a contract player with one single studio so she would like move around, be more of a freelancer. And she signed a contract with Universal for one film called Next Time We Love in 1936. And she specifically requested that a bit player from MGM would be his co-star, someone named James Stewart that nobody had ever heard of at that point. At this point, James Stewart only had like two or three credits to his name, all of them being quite like secondary characters. So basically, she got his career off the ground, um, but he and, and Margaret Sullivan knew each other for ages before the, they started working together because they were in a summer stock company called um, University Players. And that's kind of where he got his big start in New York. And then they kind of went to Hollywood. Um, Margaret Sullivan, um, James Stewart, and someone you might be familiar with called Henry Fonda, mm. who at, at one point or another was married to Margaret Sullivan. Uh, she was considered to be quite a difficult person, temperamental and moody, but mostly by the male directors she worked with quite possibly because she refused to conform to the norms of the day and didn't want to be sort of tied to one particular studio or have like you know, just a Hollywood career. So she should always often go back to to theater. Also, Ernst Lubitsch, who is quite well known for being extra meticulous and knowing exactly what he wanted from a movie and what he wanted from um, what he wanted from his cast, he refused to recast um, the, the 
part of Carla because he wanted her and he wanted Jimmy Stewart so he wanted both of them and they were not available when he wanted to make the film so he decided to wait and instead of casting someone else in the meantime he made a tiny little film called Ninochka which we might get to talk about in a future podcast episode I hope so yeah I just I really loved I really love this film I, I think I've seen it about three times in the last week or so just to get into the spirit of, of Lubitsch's world it just it just feels like you're watching ordinary people in somewhat ordinary situations however there's there's a Lubitsch magic sprinkled upon them they're just there's no scene that just is a filler nothing is left left to chance everything is kind of like well arranged and even in that scene where you have um what's the name of the kid like the the errand boy and he walks in the in the room and he finds Mr. Matichek trying to kill himself you don't really see it and you know the camera stays on the on the other side of the door and you hear you hear people talking and you hear a gunshot and you kind of imagine and it's you, that's how you discover what what went on um so the story goes that Lubitsch went to Hollywood at the behest of Mary Pickford who personally picked him for one of her pro- projects called Rosita 1923 and that's the only thing that, um the only project that they collaborated on because apparently they didn't get along at all and later Pickford called Lubitsch a director of doors not of people and if you are familiar with his work you understand why um and because he loves to do that thing where he doesn't show exactly the the, the action he he shows something else but he kind of implies what the action what, what's going on so it, everything is kind of slightly off frame but there's a reason for that and he's kind of like he's trying to get the audience interested in what's going on and trying to get them to think about what's going on not like show them exactly what is going on um and for this film to make sure that his film was stripped of the glamour that he usually had in his films um he ordered that uh, one of the dresses that margaret sullivan was supposed to wear would, would be purchased off the rack for like pound 80 and to then be left in the sun for a bleach and then altered to fit poorly so that it shows that she was just a poor girl looking for a job and not a hollywood actress you know um and about james stewart she he he said lubitsch said that he chose him because quote he was the emphasis of the all-time matinee idol he holds his public by his very lack of a handsome face or suave manner and yeah i don't know i think i'm really glad that you loved it i think the cast is sublime you have the great felix felix bressart who's always adorable and he was a lubitsch regular so he always pops up in in lubitsch films he was um pirovich the guy with the mustache um and of course Frank Morgan, who is the Wizard of Oz himself. And you can see here um, his comedic timing is very, very on point. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our next Obitch films because we can talk about them for ages and ages and ages. But yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um... Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm looking very, very much looking forward to, to talking about Ernst Lubitsch more. Um, I might actually watch some other, some other of his films kind of away from the podcast. Um, Please probably, do. Probably not Ninochka because I know you want to talk about it. So, yeah, maybe. Um, um, it depends on what you're in the mood for. He's, I don't know if he's done many d- dramatic films. He's done a lot of really good comedies and a lot of pre-code comedies and uh, musicals with Maurice Chevalier and Jeanette, Jeanette McDonald with Miriam Hopkins and I mean I'm kind of toying with the idea of, of finishing my master degree on, on a paper about Lubitsch's pre-code films 
um, because they're just brilliant. And when you see them, you kind of understand why he, he's considered to be a director of doors. Um, and yeah, um, I recently watched um, a film with the great um, Marlene Dietrich uh, called Angel, and I definitely recommend watching that. It's just brilliant. 1937. Okay. I've actually, yeah. I've actually written all those down. <laughs> Um, you have. Yeah, I mean, I have, you know, yeah. I'm always yeah. available if you want to talk about Lubitsch and Precode. I'm your man. <laughs> I can talk till the cows come home. Okay. Um, um, yeah. Go on. No, no. I was, I was gonna say that. No, I've, I've, honestly, I did really, really enjoy the film. I'm not actually just saying that just because I wanted this podcast to continue. No, I actually legitimately <laughs> liked this film a lot. Um, Le- and I, I, I do. Was, I think yeah. the premise itself, because I think you got mail came out in the nineties. Nineteen ninety-eight. Um, yeah, so that was around about the time email was kind of kicking off. I think we're kind of due, like maybe a remake or like an updated version of this premise, but I don't know how it would work in the current dating world. I don't know. Because... I don't know. I just you you in your review you said a lot. You talked a lot about rom coms, and I think. This is like the shop around the corner is probably the pattern upon it which most romantic comedies of the modern era are are sort of tailored. Yeah, I meant um, I meant the I meant the premise of like two people talking to each other through like email or letters or something, falling in love through that but then hating themselves in real life. Like the modern equivalent of that would be talking to somebody on tinder but the whole thing on tinder is like you see somebody's face and then you swipe right so like how boring is that right i know how i know it's i yeah <laughs> i don't think i don't think i don't think I, this today's society is ready for lovich anymore because there was so much he's too subtle for for normal people i think Okay. And I think that's where his strength lies, because he's just too subtle. You, I mean, that thing where you just see her face for a split second looking through the, the post box, and it just breaks your heart. And I think that would be, you know, would be missed by many people going to, to watch it today. And, yeah. and the, the bickering and everything is just, I think, yeah, it's just so much to unpack and so much to analyze in, in in his films okay i i don't know maybe i'm wrong but i just think that he's just too precious for this world i i i yeah i i kind of i kind of understand where you're coming from um i just like i said i just mean like the actual premise because you know we got the premise in in this film and then you know and, and you've got mail we got it updated with email yeah, so like slightly updated but i think it's kind of ends there because i don't think you can ever recapture that magic no. i really liked uh, to be honest i really did enjoy uh, you've got mail it's 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 a good film i always thought it was as rom-coms go it's one of the best um and it kind of did sort of capture some of the magic that Lubitsch tried to make with the shop around the corner because of the really good chemistry between tom hanks and meg ryan but and you know you've got Nora Ephron who's also a genius, but I don't know I don't know who who would be able to to do that. Maybe Wes Anderson. <laughs> okay, okay. I know. Um, yeah, I was most worth like yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's just an interesting thought. Uh, so, um. Okay, so oh, oh, I mean, I dare I ask, are you done with Lubitsch for the moment? For the moment, <laughs> unless you want me to talk some more, but I think we're, I think, I think we're, we're, we're done for that. We, we, we have a, we have a, 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 a another t- film to talk about today. Uh, oh yes, yeah. Um, that uh, <laughs> that other film is, um, of course, Trading Places from nineteen eighty three. Directed by John Landis, uh, starring Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, and Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, a brief synopsis: A snobbish investor and a wily street con artist find them find their positions reversed as part of a bet by two callous millionaires. 
Um, so, Danny doesn't reckon this is a Christmas film. Okay. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, that is that is correct. Okay. Um, because, like you said, it just it doesn't feel like. I mean, yeah, you kind of got a bit of family happening at the end. People getting getting together like an unconventional family love, um, you know, brotherly love with you know everyone's like outcast, so to speak, um, finding one another. So yeah, in in that is you might you might say that it is a Christmas movie. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I did really really enjoyed it. I did expect it to be a bit more festive. Um, which is why I'm I'm kind of reluctant to call it a straight out Christmas film. I did expect it to be a bit more festive, um, but I it was great fun. It was um, it was not a laugh out loud. I don't I don't think I've had a laugh out loud mo- moment. Maybe I don't know the. I did. It just felt a bit cringe at times. I mean, I'm thinking of the the scene on the train on the train where all these people. Yeah. You know, it just felt a bit cringe then. Um, I don't know if you could still do that today. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll get on to that. <laughs> um, it was just like, whoa, okay, okay, okay. I totally forgot about that, so I do apologise. Um, no, it's just like, you know, it's the 80s, so anything goes. Um... I don't. Yeah, I don't think I've laughed out loud, but I was. I was amused and I did enjoy it. I. Um. I was. I mean, I'm not a big fan of. Um, of Eddie Murphy's or Dan Aykroyd, as as much. Although I kind of grew up watching Ghostbusters and um, Beverly Hills Cop and and those films from the 80s and 90s. I think Beverly Hills Cop had like what three installments. Yeah, three installments. And yeah, and I, I kind of, I was kind of uh, expecting a bit more energy and a bit more fire from Eddie Murphy. Like, it was, I was expecting a bit more action. I don't know. However, the premise was something that I was familiar with. You know, you have the prince and the pauper, and then exchanging roles. So I was kind of expecting a bit more comedy coming from that angle. Um, and. I did enjoy the evil duo played by um, Ralph Bellamy of his girl Friday fame and Donna Mechie of, you know, Three Musketeers and his TV work fame and other films that he's done that I can't remember right now. Um, so I think the chemistry between those two boys were was quite, quite fun. Um, to see them play villains, um, it was it was quite, quite something. And yeah, I I just felt like to begin with, like the um what's his name, Louis, just felt a bit bland. You do, you don't really connect with him at the beginning because he's you know because he's super rich and when he when things go bad for him, you don't really feel sorry. Yeah. Uh, I was kind of hoping he would at the beginning. I was kind of hoping he'd have a bit more character development. And, but it just, it didn't feel like that to me. It just felt like it was one of those, you know, boring Harvard boys with no personality, which is why I probably was like, okay. Um, it, it, I mean, he does grow on you and you kind of understand him better when, you know, he's pulling the gun at the party and he's just hiding salmon in his jacket and his Christmas Santa jacket and whatnot. And then try, you know, it just picks up, but it just felt a bit like, static at the beginning and then it culminates for that ridiculous scene in, in the tra- on the train um which was fun um i mean you know and jamie lee curtis is always a bonus she's she's an incredible um actress although i don't know that perm wig was quite unfortunate um but she makes up for it <laughs> and yeah i i mean i did i, I did really enjoy it um Special mention to, to the butler, who was my favorite character. I think it was just really, really cool. Den Holm Elliot. Um, yeah, I think who, he was brilliant. Yeah, he's um, obviously everybody would recognize him from the Indiana Jones trilogy. 
Um, oh, of course. Where we played, uh, Dr. Where we played Dr. Marcus Brody. Um, a, a cat, yeah. he's, he, he's, he, he knows so many languages. He can blend in with the environment. And yeah, I got to love Mason Denon. He's great. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for making me. I mean, I, like I said, I was expecting a bit more like festive cheer, but it did not disappoint. Um, you know, like you said, with the shop around the corner, uh, everyone got their happy end ending on a tropical island somewhere with the yacht and everything else. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that, what what can you expect more? Yeah, I mean, when when we when I first kind of suggested, like when we talk about Chris doing a Christmas film on the podcast, um, you know, it's just like I mean, it was back in June or July we probably scheduled this. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I suggested Trading Places because it was Christmas. It was a film that I hadn't seen in a while. It's a film I do have fond memories of watching, and I have this memory in my head of it being associated with Christmas. And I did like a quick Google search and, and it kind of was like, okay, yeah, no, that fits. Let's do it. As trade places, you know, I'd, I'd love to see Danny, Danny give her opinion on it. Um, and, but then as kind of things have progressed in the real world, I don't think a more apt 2020 sequence at Christmas is more like, does it come more true than Dan Aykroyd Drunkenly eating salmon in a dirty Satin's <laughs> outfit on a bus. Oh, um, with like hair. With hair out and out of his coat pocket. I don't think any sequences captures the mood of Christmas of 2020 than that image right there. <laughs> so germs everywhere. Yeah. So um, I think you know. I think the way the way Louis is in in Christmas in his Santa's outfit. Where he's angry, depressed, and upset, and wants and justice, and drunk. I think that's what everybody has been like. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I, I think in that kind of respect, I think the film kind of works as well for that for that reason. But the film, I film really just surprised me then that that is more of a a holiday film in that it starts off in Thanksgiving. You know, American Thanksgiving is what the last Thursday of November, if I remember rightly. Yeah. And then you've got Christmas, and then you've got the New Year's sequence on the train, and then the um, the sequence of the World Trade Center at the at the end, which is like meant to be like second the first, of, yeah, second. The second of January they said. I think they said second of January that they had the crop report. Yeah. So um, yeah. So this film originally uh, originally it kind of started off as a project for uh, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder um and you can definitely see that in its concept um mm. Richard Pryor obviously in the Eddie Murphy role Gene Wilder in in the in Dan Aykroyd role obviously at that time they were coming off off the heels of of a success of uh, Stir Crazy um I don't think they had made uh, see no evil or hear no evil yet at that at this point um, which is my favourite of the comedies that they two did together, but the this the the um, this changed um, when Richard Pryor was severely injured after setting himself on fire whilst freebasing cocaine. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's um, the man. <laughs> I Jesus. love Richard Pryor. Is a, if uh, if you anybody wants to have some free time, just look up the stories or watch some of the stand up from Richard Pryor. Even if you've seen it before, read it before, it's it's amazing in every single way. Um, in Eddie, one of Eddie Murphy's um, stand up, I think it's he one or two. It's either Delirious or Raw. He he, you know, he talks about Richard Pryor. Um, giving him some advice on how to deal with Bill Cosby, so I I thoroughly uh, recommend that. Um, it's it's excellent. Um, so Landis, uh, John Landis cast Dan Aykroyd after working with him on the Blues Brothers. Um, Blues Brothers, obviously, he coast Dan Aykroyd co-starred with Jim Belushi, who we see at the end. Oh, that was a nice, nice. I it's it's really great for me to see Jim Belushi on screen. Um and. Paramount uh, pushed for the casting of Eddie Murphy after they received kind of like some positive feedback over the then unreleased film uh, 48 Hours, uh, which he co-starred with with Nick Nolte. Um, And Eddie Murphy's kind of growing 
fame and profile from his uh, time on SNL, uh, Saturday Night Live. Um, so the film was released in the summer of 1983. Um, and this is the summer of... So I'm obviously, like, in hindsight speaks words, but this is before... You know, you, 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 you're, you're January 1983. You're looking at the, the summer of films that are going to be released. And among the films that are released, you've got Star Wars Return of the Jedi. You've got Superman 3. And you've got the latest James Bond film, Octopussy. Okay, so just independent movies then. Yeah, much like today. But what happened was, this film ended up becoming the, the fourth highest grossing film of 1983. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, behind um, the romantic film uh, Flashdance, the comedy drama Turns of Endearment, and obviously Return of the Jedi becoming the you know was the highest grossing film of 1983. So I th- it did extraordinarily well um, considering the the competition it was up against. Um, it's like looking at you know the the summer of blockbusters that we had last year, the 2019 you know slew of massive big blockbusters, and then this comedy original comedy coming out of nowhere and just you know i think we had it a few years ago with what bridesmaids you know making loads of money mm. out of you know a, a summer of franchises and then obviously it becomes a franchise in itself but that's besides the point um so yeah um shortly after this uh training places uh, shortly after this um paramount um signed any murphy to a 25 million dollar five film exclusive contract which was one of the biggest deals they ever had with an actor at the time um bearing in mind this is probably i think it's only like second or third proper feature film at the time um so it's huge um trading places is kind of the film that made jamie lee curtis a name away from being the screen queen if that makes any sense um so she makes sense yeah so she had obviously been in halloween and she then starred in its sequel halloween 2 which she was paid she was paid a lot of money for um i can't remember the exact money off the top of my head Um, but she did that as a favor for um for john carp john carpenter and and producer deborah hill um and obviously you know she kind of wanted to branch away from being a screen queen because you know who her mother was and her performance, you know, and and, and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's own role in in Halloween and Halloween Two, um, and what this this film ended up doing was it it, it kind of ended up having her being cast in A Fish Called Wanda. Uh, the, the story goes, John Cleese saw this and then cast um, Jamie Lee Curtis in A Fish Called Wanda specifically of because course. yeah, um, A Fish Called Wanda is utterly excellent. Um, well, yeah, it's written by John Cleese. Of course, it's excellent. <laughs> um, so, a bit more casting. So, you've got the Duke brothers, uh, Ralph Bellamy and Don uh, Ameche. How do you say it? Ameche. Don Ameche. Yeah. Ameche. So, um, so, for Mortimer, Landis wanted, kind of wanted to cast an actor from the 30s, famous in the 30s and 40s, who was kind of not associated with playing a villain. Um, his first choice was uh, Ray Milland, um, but he was kind of unable to pass a physical test to qualify for insurance. Um, they, they originally then they decided to go. Landis went with Don Amenche. Um The casting director at the time claimed that Amenche was dead, so Landis <laughs> was kind of skeptical of this, and he contacted the Scream Actors Guild, you know, to try and find him. They said that Amanche had no agent and that all the royalty payments were being, you know, sent to his son in Arizona, which Landis kind of accepted as the fact that, you know, he was dead. He was dead. <laughs> um, but then um, a studio, uh, Paramount Studios uh, secretary mentioned that she saw Amanche kind of regularly on San Vicente Boulevard in Santa Monica, California. And what Landis did is he, you know, called, di- you know, the director and asked for Diamante in the area and made contact. And at the time, Manche hadn't made a feature film in for over a decade. Um, and you know, at the time, he was like, "Well, because I haven't not, no one's offered him any film work." Um, Paramount didn't want to offer to pay Manche what Milan had been offered. Um, so because Manche was seen as financially independent and in no need of work, um, but he refused to do the part until he received equal pay. Of course. Um, but despite, after not working in a film for, for more than a decade, Amache followed Trading Places with 
1983 film Cocoon, for which he won his first and only Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Um, I think that's quite a nice story. Um, you know, they, the people thought he was dead, but he then <laughs> comes back two years later and wins, wins an Oscar. So I think that's that's really nice. Um, and then, so I'm going to change the tone a little bit to that scene on the train. <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah, Dan Aykroyd in blackface. Uh, I totally forgot that was a thing. Oh. I had to take a moment there. I'm like... Yeah, so did I. <laughs> I was like, whoa, okay. Because I was, I was loving the scene when... I was loving it when, when Eddie Murphy showed up and his... Uh, was it from Cameroon? And he had yeah. an amazing voice and the, the fly swatter. Merry New Year. And he's got this amazing smile. It's an amazing... And then, you know... Um, you know, uh, what's his name? Denim Elliott comes along as the drunk Irish... Priest and mm. Jamie Lee Curtis is as a sweet. Oh, she meant to be Swedish, wasn't she? Or from Austria? You no, know, she was supposed to be from Austria, but she was. She said she was from Sweden. <laughs> yeah, she looked like she was from Austria, <laughs> but yeah, she I, was from Sweden. Um, that is because um, she had trouble with German accents, so she just went with the Swedish accent. Okay. And I think that kind of lent itself to the the farcical of, of the farcical nature of the scene, but then you get Dan Aykroyd showing up in blackface, and it totally threw me off. Um, I honestly don't know. I don't know how it was acceptable in in the, the nineteen eighty three. To be honest, I don't know how Eddie Murphy saw it and was like, "Yeah, I'm okay yeah. with that." Um, um. but then I I, I don't, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a bit messed up, but um, in in response to to this year's kind of you know protest over uh, the the death of George Floyd, and then you had all the um, talk about racial inequality. We had our own episode on on Gone with the Wind and its place in in twenty twenty. Um, Training Places was one of uh, sixteen films that had a disclaimer added by Sky over here in the UK. Um, the disclaimer read, this film has outdated attitudes, language, and cultural depictions, which may cause offence today. Um, so I think they are specifically referring to that aforementioned of blackface. And they are also meant, um, referring to the the use of the N-word by, by the Duke brothers. Yes, that was quite... Uh, uh, it felt quite, quite jarring on my ears when I saw it. We were referring to the in the bathroom yeah yeah i was like whoa it it kind of i for me it it did it was like okay that was was not expecting that but then it it made sense because we then got the reaction from eddie murphy it was if it was spoken and we didn't get a reaction from from eddie murphy then it wouldn't be it would be okay that's unneeded yeah. we don't need that and and there and there i mean they're blatantly the villains of the story so you kind of understand that it's it's meant to to be jarring and it's meant to be hateful yes um and you're not supposed to side with these characters because you know that they're they're the the bad people they're the bad they're the villains of the story yeah yeah um and it it, you know it makes their whole attitudes you know that just nails home the point that they are outdated and yes yeah, um, they're fossils. Be, yeah, fossils. Um, another thought kind of struck me whilst watching this, uh, in obviously with the mind of of, of living in today's world. Um, eat the rich. <laughs> uh, yeah, the rich should not have that amount of money. Um, obviously this is 1983, yeah. so it's it was slightly different back then because you know it's all you know Wolf of Wall Street kind of idea, but. Yeah, even today, some of that stuff, you know, still goes on, and it really, really, uh, uh, it's 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 really uncomfortable. I probably was more, I was I was probably on the, on the same kind of level of uncomfortableness with the whole, you know, aspect of rich people than as well as I was with the whole blackface thing. I, you know, it just it made me so uncomfortable. Um, yeah, listen, I mean, you're saying that there's still some of that going rich 
It's more so than ever. I mean, during this pandemic, some of the richest people in the world got like 10 times richer than they ever got. Yeah. We have three people who are, what's the word? They've got a hundred billions, over a hundred billion. Yeah. I think somebody worked out that Jeff Bezos could cure world hunger and still have enough money over to be the, the most richest person on the planet. Yeah, um, and he does what? He thinks about doing space travel because that's what he wants to do. He doesn't give a hoot about that's, anybody that's Elon, else. That's Elon Musk, isn't it? Elon Musk is space travel. Bezos just no, lives but, on a No, but no, Bezos also said, Bezos also said that he, that's what he wants to do with his money. He's, yeah. not the per- he's not the kind of person who would like to, like, you know, give. Yeah, God forgive. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. that's fine. It's that's just fine. like I, I hate, I hate, I hate the super rich. They should pay their taxes. Yeah, we, we, I was, I was wary of this conversation heading down that route because I knew your opinions on the rich and capitalism in general. So I knew that was this was coming. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, despite all that, you you enjoyed trading places, um, and you know. You said that you know each person got their comeuppance. You know they 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 ended up losing all their money. Yeah, and you uh-huh. kind of feel you kind of feel that you know people who work their asses off their whole life, well, at least a part of their life. Yeah. Um, like um, what's her name? Ophelia. Yeah. What a lovely name, right? Um. They they deserved the the money they they won at the at the stock market. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that they. they I think one of the, I think one of the things that one of the things I enjoyed most about the film I think for me is Eddie Murphy's we didn't see it enough in this was Eddie Murphy's kind of rapid fire we saw it when he when he was yeah, playing the homeless that's what man. I felt it was just um, I, I'm I'm used to him having more energy and yeah. more charisma and I didn't get enough of that yeah I think I think I think because at this time I don't think they. I think because 48 hours hadn't come out at this point. So they, I think studios just didn't know what to do with Eddie Murphy at this point because they didn't know whether to let him do his thing or to try and rein him in and let him do something and trying to get him to do something else. I think we kind of see the, the balance between that and this film. Because I think it, the way his, his performance is much, much better when he's doing his... You know when he's playing the homeless man with the no legs and the blind, and you know when he's <laughs> and then when he's in the when he's in the police cell pretending to know karate and and the court blood yeah. stuff. Um, you know he's he's much funnier doing all that kind of stuff than he is in the rest of the film. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, um, but I I kind of can't continue this discussion without at least touching on John Landis. Um, so, are, are you familiar with the, the career of John Landis? Um, I know he directed Thriller. Yeah, so, right, so he, he did, you know, directed Thriller, but John Landis also did American Wealth in London, The Blues Brothers, Training Places. Oh, yes, I loved American Wealth. Yeah. Training Places, Coming to America, which I will get you to watch one day because it, it has the best, my favourite Eddie Murphy performance, is, uh, plural. Um, but John Landis um, was also one of the co-directors on the Twilight Zone movie that that, uh, that was filmed in the 80s. Um, so that was a film where you had three segments, each directed by a different director. One was done by George Miller of Mad Max, one was done by Spielberg, and the other was done by uh, John Landis. Um, so the John Landis segment, there was an accident on set. Now I'm using the word accident in quotation marks. Um, now the specifics I won't go into, but the actor Vic Morrow and two children, uh, three, two children? were killed when a helicopter crash happened on set. Um, There was a massive lawsuit over the incident. So the film, um, in my opinion, I think John Landis should have been tried for manslaughter um, due to work. Basically, if you do the research into reading what happened and Landis's response and what Landis did of Vic Morrow's funeral... Um, you 
it's it's truly truly astonishing um that that man was ever allowed to work again in hollywood um so yeah i i can't seriously yeah. You have no idea what going what goes on in Hollywood. Um, I don't and, know, but I'm pretty know, sure that the worst thing of things have happened, and people have been allowed to work. Well, when I mean, you read when you read what happened on that Twilight Zone set, I I think you 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 might kind of sit back and go, okay, that's yeah. Um, and uh, it goes it goes to show that you know there are there are more there's more than just max landis uh, john landis's son that john landis is responsible for being whole you know um max landis himself is a screenwriter responsible for the film chronicle among other not very good films but he's a very very toxic individual um that should not be allowed to work in hollywood for his role in the in the in the not say role in the me too movement but his he, he was called out in the me too movement so mm. uh, rightfully so um so yeah john landis is a very very kind of complicated director in that i love his work american world in london is one of the greatest horror films ever made um coming to america is one of my favorite films and you know the blues brothers is a family staple of ours um but he is responsible for uh one of the worst tr- atrocities on, on to ever occur on a film set so yeah i couldn't i could not have us uh, talking about landis without without bringing that up um so anyway changing the subject i think we're done on trading places and shop around the corner yeah. Unless you have anything more to add. No, I do not. Cool. So, as I said last week at the end of last week's episode, this is our season finale. Um, we are going to take a break for an undisclosed amount of time, uh, but we will return. I can promise you that. Um, in the meantime, um, I just want to kind of review our year on the podcast um by giving you guys what we kind of our two or three favorite films that danny has made me watch and then what i have made watch uh made danny watch uh we want to try and keep things positive so we're not going to have any discussion on you know what films we hated i'm holding my tongue please Uh, long time listeners would know what we're talking about um so Danny what what were you what were your highlights of this of this year on on our podcast uh, Keen Atomic Hmm I think I'm going to start with Tokyo Tribe uh, <laughs> Kidding kidding yeah. kidding Um no serious on a more serious note I do think that the recent um film that I was made to watch uh, is probably taking the number one spot. I am talking about Wages of Fear, of course. Um, I was just blown away by that film. I just, yeah, I think that is one of the best films that um, has Nick has suggested on the podcast. It, it's just mind-blowing. Um, it, it, I felt uncomfortable. I felt all the feelings all rolled into one. It was, it was what a roller coaster of a film! I love that. That's good. Yeah, good shout. Yeah. Um, yeah. I th- um. I we can take it. Take it to just like, we'll rule off. We'll rule off like two or three. So, um, I think for me, like one that jumps out. I think it's very very early on where we did in a lonely place. Um, I can't argue with Humphrey Bogart um it was an utterly astounding performance by him in that film and uh, yeah it 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 really it really kind of stands in my memory stays in my memory that film um so yeah I think In a Lonely Place is definitely definitely one um do you do you have any other like any others I do. I mean, I can't. I'm looking at the list, and I can't really. I have got about four or five. Go. For, oh, go on. Go on. Just, just list them off. Just list them off. Okay. So, um, Old Boy was another incredibly astonishing film that it just. 
blew my mind. Um, again, it made me feel uncomfortable. It made me uh, feel bad. It made me feel happy, sad, surprised, uh, disgusted, everything all rolled into one. And oh, I went to the I went to the um, to the cinema before it closed down once more. And um, they had like a, a sort of a, a trailer of what was to come in January uh, at the VFI, and they short they had um, a snippet of that scene uh, in in the is it in the basement the hallway Where the, the hallway the fight scene, and you have that close up of of him smiling smirking that. And it just, I was like, oh my God, I got, oh, that's such a good scene. It's such a good, like, close up of his face going, hmm. And then he kind of goes and just kills some fools. It's just brilliant. And on the same note, um, on the same sort of trailer, they they were announcing that they were having a Ennio Morricone um, sort of season at the BFI. And I have to mention Cinema Paradiso and how much I cried watching this film. I actually got dehydrated because I was sobbing for an hour. I was like, I didn't stop for an hour and I'm not kidding. Um, so that film, we had a bonus episode on Ennio Morricone just after he died and I hadn't seen Cinema Paradiso and it just, God, that film. And, um... I, I, I have to mention a couple of uh, of scary films that we watched because we had a um, Hollywood season. So we had A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which I thought was brilliant. And um, Memories of Murder, again, brilliant. And maybe last but not least, I really enjoyed Living in Oblivion. I think that makes, that that's the one that makes me happiest the most because like living in oblivion. I think when we even discussed on the film, it's like this very very unknown film that it's and uh, of course um, kiss kiss bang bang as well. Sorry, oh. kiss kiss. <laughs> yeah, oh, but yeah, no, living in oblivion. It's like it's such an unknown film, and I think that's kind of what the joys one of the best things about having you know a podcast with this premise. If I can I can say to you, watch this. Have you seen it? Have you heard of it? And you can just say no, and then. You know, and you can say the same to me, and 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 yeah. our eyes being open to something we've we've never even heard of. Um. So yeah, I think, I think for me, um. So I, I <laughs> yes? I'm trying to. I'm trying. I'm trying to think. No, I, I'm. I'm trying to think. Like, I really. So I really, really enjoyed um like the, the, the two um like screwball comedies we've had. Um Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three and twentieth century. Um I did really, really enjoy those. Um Gold Diggers I I I think I even said at the time it's probably one that's due the rewatch. Um yeah. I think the film that kind of made me have the same kind of reaction as Danny had with Cinema Ready, so it was the Red Turtle. Um oh. that that one hit me hard. Um and I do listen to the score quite quite a lot. And then kind of recently, like the 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 the, 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 the lead up really to this episode where, you know, Night of the Hunter, the Bet Humane, Elevated to the Gallows, the Thin Man, Man Who Wasn't There, Lay Die by Leak. I, it's just it's just so it's films I've heard of but I've never got round to watching um, and then Thin, The Thin Man I think is probably the one that I'm probably going to rewatch again I think um, I have to give you a list of all the um, uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy films because there are quite a few of them and they're all very very good okay oh, in, in return I'll, I'll give you a list of all the all the Sion Sono films to watch um, oh <laughs> I'm joking. No, no. I, I, I. Yeah. No. I will. Please, I will... please. I have to have them. <laughs> um. But yeah. No. I honestly like when we we started talking about doing this podcast last year in 2019. Um. You know. That we kind of we we needed 
we almost needed the lockdown for it to kind of kick into gear um because we both of us had this free time um and i think i'm really i am really grateful that we've had the chance to kind of do this season i don't know if you are silence yeah. is comforting <laughs> <laughs> no it was good it was good to have um a, a dedicated hour per week to talk about some of our favorite films and and sort of get each other's opinion on films that the other person hadn't seen and maybe see what other people thought of of it yeah um so like i said we we will be returning at some point um i think i think the 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 pencil in is the pencil is at the moment for the beginning of february um but that's obviously depending on what we're doing both in our own kind of work and yeah. study um, um we'll see how it goes got, yeah we've got a few other projects on the go and logistics and you know i'm currently staying in support bubbles with friends and um i'm moving back to london at some point but i'm not sure when so yeah um yeah stay tuned we will we will return and when we do we will be you know we'll have some excellent some other excellent films to discuss um so yeah that's the end of season one of keen atomic uh it's it's been great i hope everyone has um has has a really really good christmas um and i really really hope 2021 is a better year for everybody here here yeah yeah um so with all that in mind um between now and <laughs> the and the foreseeable future, where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan, and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. And you can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler. Website is superatomovision.com. Um, I, I have a letterbox. Um, you just search uh, Nick S. Chandler. You should be able to find me on there. I think that's kind of it. We've got our own Twitter, uh, Kinato- at Keenatomic, which we're going to try and keep active over the Christmas month uh, Christmas month and into the new year, kind of doing a bit more social media engagement, so look out for that. Drop us an email on keenatomic at gmail.com. Um, let us know um, if you end up going back through those old episodes, what your favourite moments or favourite films that we've discussed are. Um, or tell us how much you miss us or tell us how much you don't want us to come back um, <laughs> let, let, let us know <laughs> let us know um, so all that in mind it's a, it's a goodbye and a thank you thank you very much for listening from me and a goodbye and a Merry Christmas and a thank you very much for listening from me